Good morning, First Church. I'm glad you could be here with us. Let's go ahead and stand and get into some worship.
I've tried in vain a thousand ways My fears to quell, my hopes to raise But what I need, your word has said Is ever only Jesus You died
The head that once was crowned with thorns Is crowned with glory now The Savior nailed to wash our feet Now at His feet we
the tomb where life itself was laid was borrowed for three days his body there would not remain our god has robbed the
Welcome back, and uh, as we continue, you know, I was thinking as we were singing, um, one, of the, one of the lines we, uh, we sang that we, yes, that's right, one of the lines we sang was the Savior uh, knelt to wash our feet, and at his feet we bow, 
And it, and it just hit me, you know, sometimes when, I, when, we, when we sing, I try to think about the words like personalize them. And I, and I think I was sitting there thinking, what if Jesus just walked into this, this auditorium? Or what if Jesus walked into your home right now as you were worshiping? And, and you know, we'd be awestruck. And it would, but what if he just walked in and came and knelt down and started washing your feet? I think I would react probably like Peter. I'd like, no, Lord, no, no, no. Because Peter actually was very perceptive when you think about it. He said, no, Lord, don't wash. And he said, well, then if you are, then wash all of me. Because Peter recognized how dirty he was. He recognized the problem he had and that it needed more than just washing feet. I think he had this, this idea. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's modeling service to the, these future leaders. He's modeling service, but also he's saying the greater washing is about to come. This is what this is all pointing to, this greater washing that's going to come by way of the cross. But I, but I think... You know, if Jesus walked in and started washing my feet, my first thought would be, no, no, Lord. I don't deserve you washing my feet. And Jesus' whole point was, I have to do this. This has to be done. And so it was, it, it's, it's a good thing to do sometimes as you worship, as you sing, to kind of personalize and think, well, what if that was me? What if I was seeing that? We're uh, in our study on the book of Hosea. And again, like we've said almost every week, I want to emphasize the point of Hosea is repentance. This is that overarching thing that has to, that God is continually coming back to, and he will, as we look at, at uh, chapters 10 and 11, we're going to look at the father who loves and rescues rebels. But I was this week, I was thinking about something, you know, at Christmas, um, there we were, I forget how, one of my daughters was making an album, a photo album, and so I, I was looking through pictures. Lots of, we have lots of pictures. And for those of you who you, you've gotten older and your kids have grown up, you know this, that's the wrong thing to do. You know, maybe you just, you just start getting teary-eyed, you know, you start seeing baby pictures, you start seeing first day of school pictures, you start seeing sports pictures and chorus pictures and choir pictures and play pictures, and you start seeing Oh, man, see, it's going to hit me now. You start seeing wedding pictures, and you, I just became an emotional basket case, you know. Uh, this great time of Christmas, and family's coming, and my daughter's going to make this album that she's going to surprise my wife with, with all these pictures put in certain ways, and, and really cool. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, baby, 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 like that. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how much I love my kids, how much I love my kids. I mean, my wife loves them too. Don't get me wrong, but my, my love is like another level in that area. And that's really a stupid thing for me to say. We could actually title this sermon, How to Alienate 52% of Your Congregation, and then How to Let the Other 48% Know You're an Idiot, because we both love our kids. We're not perfect. We know that. As you get older, you know, you start looking back and you go, oh, why did I do it that way? Oh, well, you know, you can really second guess yourself. So we know we're not perfect, but we know we love our kids. And then to, it hits me, you know, we, God loves my kids more than I do. He loves my kids way more than I can comprehend of, that I could ever realize. God loves his children. He is their Abba, their father. And I know when we talk about something like this, for, for some people, their father was not a picture of love. Or for some people, father, their father was non-existent. Because 
Earthly fathers can at times be bad fathers, but don't let your earthly example of a father hinder you from your idea of God as your father. And, and if you were abandoned or you were abused, I, I realize this can be very hard to see. I realize this is a difficult thing for some people to picture, but allow God's love that is shown to us in the Word of God to contrast from the failures of your earthly father. And, and, and if your earthly father has stolen this from you, don't let him steal this. God loves you deeply. I was reading a, uh, a theologian, pretty famous guy. He's pretty deep. He's, 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 he's really sharp. And somebody just asked him one time, if you could just narrow down to one thing, what would you say is the most important thing that a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ could know? And he said, if they could just know how much God loves them. If they could just know how much God loves them. And they said, okay, that's very profound, you know. And they said, well, now for Christians, if there's one thing you think a Christian should know. And he goes, it's the same thing. Even for Christians, if they could begin to grasp, you know, Paul talks about to begin to grasp how wide and high and deep and great is the love of God. He said, if they could grasp how much God loves them, their walk with God would be so much more powerful. And so we have this heavenly father who has limitless love. It is a scandalous love. We, we titled the whole book of Hosea as this story of a scandalous love, a love that goes against what everybody thinks should happen. And we saw Hosea and Gomer in this picture of, of a husband and wife, and we see how that related to God with his children, God with his wife, Israel, and Judah. And now, in this passage that we're going to look at, God he paints three pictures. He paints pictures that they would be very, you know, this is one of those things that's important for us as we study the Word of God. We've got to understand some of the culture. We've got to understand some of the context. We've got to understand what's going on at that time because the writers wrote in their vernacular. They wrote in their mindset, understanding what they understood. God inspired them supernaturally, but they couldn't break out. They can't break out of the culture they live in. And so what do we see? We see three pictures that that culture would readily understand. We're going to see the picture of a vine. We're going to see the picture of a young calf. And then we're going to see the picture of a lost son. All right? And so we have this father who rescues rebels. We're going to look at four points today. We're going to look at the rebels misuse God's blessing. Rebels squander their privilege. Rebels reject God's love. And the fourth point is the father's scandalous faithful love. So the first thing is rebels misuse God's blessing. I want you to see that. And that's, we begin with that within chapter 10, verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. And as his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. So what's going on here? First of all, we know this historically, but also the Bible tells us this too, because they match, is this is a time of prosperity. People are doing well, generally speaking. Uh, they've had good rains. They've had good harvests. And so things, things are going well. Now, this actually leads to their undoing. Because what happens is, there's this great power, Assyria. And Assyria needs food. And they look south. It's kind of a south and, and looking kind of a, a westward look. And they see lots of food. They see areas that are food is growing and, and people are doing well. That's what made Syria to begin to look 
at Israel, to look at a land that needs that they felt they could conquer and that they would benefit from. So this is a time of prosperity. He says Israel was a, a spreading vine. So now God's painted this picture. Israel is a vine, and it's a time of abundance, right? There's good weather. There's good rain. And what's happening? He brought forth fruit for himself. Here's the charge God brings. You're, you're being blessed. You're being, uh, 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 God is showering these things on you. And you're like, it's for me. It's for me. It's all about me. That's how Israel was taking this. It was all about me. This is what is so easy for us to fall into. God brings blessing into our life. And we think, well, this is for me. This is for me. So they built more altars. They built more sacred stones, which were used to worship idols, worship other gods. They, did, they didn't acknowledge that God was the one doing it. They didn't give him his due. They weren't giving, we know from the charges in other books even around the same time, they weren't giving the principle of first fruits. God said, give me the first fruits. When the, when the, when the, uh, when the harvest begins, the first fruits go, get set aside to God. Now, that was purposeful because everybody said we want to give to God, but what they tended to do, which is what we tend to do, is they tended to say, let's wait till the end. We'll get all our money. We'll pay all our bills, apportion everything out. Now, this is what's left, left over, so we'll give God a slice of that. We'll give God out of our excess because it's not hard. But God says, no, give me the first fruits. Step out in faith. Give me the first part of it, and then trust me for all the rest, and I will bless you more than you realize. And so they built these altars. They built these with the prophets that they were making off these abundant crops, more sacred stones, looking to more idols so that they could harvest even more. Because why? Because it was all about me. You know, it, it reminds me, what's very interesting is that there's a lot of parallels in Hosea. It comes up in different parts, parallels with the story of the prodigal son that, we, that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And if you remember what happened, the prodigal son, he went to the father and he said, Father, I want my inheritance. I want my inheritance. Now, that is a super loaded statement because when does a person get their inheritance? When their father dies. So that is, in that culture, a person saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, which is a statement about the relationship, the relationship that's going on there. He's saying, man, I wish you were dead. I, I hate you. And you are obviously so disappointed in me. I'm not like my older brother. Our relationship is dead. Let's admit it. So give me my money and let me get out of here. Right? It's all about me. It's all about me. So in verse 2, their heart is deceitful. And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Their, their heart is false. Understand this. It's always about the heart. It is always about our heart. That's what God is chasing. He's chasing our heart. We have to understand that. Why? Because then out of the heart, Jesus talked about that, but out of the heart comes the actions. Out of the heart comes the actions of sin. Out of the heart comes rebellion. So it will always be about the heart. And so he's saying their heart is deceitful. 
And now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and, and destroy their sacred. So God says, look, I can't. You, I've told you no other gods before me. I am going to take care of that. That cannot stand. That cannot stand. So then in verse 3 and 4, he says, that, then they will say, we have no king because we do not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises, but false oath, take false oaths and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. All right? they, 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 they're not bringing God into the situation, into the problem. They said, we're not revering God. And God says, you know, if we, if we come to him and we pray, he's going to bring the right king. Well, we don't want to do it. We don't want that king. What's he going to do for us anyway? And so what, what are they saying? We're saying, God, we don't want your plan. We don't want your way. They don't revere God. They, they still had rulers at those times, but they had rulers that did not revere God and did not care about God. And then very simply, they were not people of their word. They, they lied. They could not be trusted. He said, lawsuits, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds. That sounds like today. We just, we, we, we want to litigate everything. No one trusts anybody. Everyone lies. It's all, all, all that stuff that's going on. He's saying that's what's going on then too. The people who live in Samaria fear the calf idol of beth Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. Those who had rejoiced over its splendor, because it is taken from them into exile. So they have this golden calf, and it's on the hill. It's, on, it's at Bethel. Bethel was the house of God, and God changes it, the name to Beth-Avon, which means the house of evil, the house of disobedience. And so he's saying, look, you have this golden calf. You, you haven't hidden this from me. I see it. I'm taking it away from you. Assyria is going to come, and one of the spoils they're going to take is that golden calf. They're going to take it for the gold. You have this, this man-made idol at the place he, he calls the house of evil. And it's interesting because he says you're going to mourn for the loss of that idol. His point is you're mourning the wrong things. You're worried about the wrong things. Your cares are all wrapped up in the wrong things. We have to be, and this is a matter of the heart, right? We have to be careful about what our heart is wrapped up in. We have to be careful about what, if it's taken away, that, we, that would be devastating for us. We have to be careful about this. God says, trust me. Trust me. In the middle of political uncertainty, trust me. In the middle of racial uncertainty, trust me. In the middle of economic uncertainty, in the middle of financial uncertainty, in the middle of, of health uncertainty. He says, you got to trust me. you got to put me first. Don't put somebody else first. Don't make somebody else what you trust. Put me first, because that's exactly what they did. And that is incredibly applicable for us today. Because we got to be careful what we trust and what our trust is wrapped up in. we got to be careful what, if it was taken away, we would mourn. And that, that word is a really strong, strong word. The accent, it makes it very strong. What would devastate us? What would devastate us if we would take it away? We have to be careful about that. Because God says, no, I'm the one you should be looking for. 
So then, and then this isn't on the screen, just the, the couple of verses that said it will, that calf will be carried to Assyria, to Assyria as tribute for the king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of his foreign alliances. Those people you trusted, he said, will let you down. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept away like a twig on the surface of waters. And the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. Those altars. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover those altars. They will say to the mountains, cover us, to the hills, fall on us. He says, since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war overtake even the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their sins. So the taking of the idol is going to happen. The, the, the destruction is going to happen. Israel has this long history of rebellion. He, he mentions Gibeah. Gibeah is where an incredible tragedy happened. Just, a, just an incredible, horrible spot in the history of Israel, not long after, after Joshua had died. And so what is he doing? He's looking at hundreds of years of rebellion. He, he, this is that thing where we say, oh, wow, God, you sound like you're so mad and you're going to just take such vengeance. you got to understand something. This is hundreds of years of rebellion where God is saying, no, come back. No, come back. Come on repent let's and it's fits and starts and fits and starts and God says at some point at some point all of this must be reckoned their sins are coming home to to roost and what happens now is that we have to stop and think do I give my affection do I give my trust to things that are made by my own hands things that are man-made things that don't really matter because idols, you know, what are idols? We've talked about this each week. Each week, uh, Idol is a functional God of our own making that we look to in order to bring meaning to life. It's, it's something that brings us meaning. It's something that brings us significance. It's something that we think is so important. That's the things that, that tend to become idols. And that's what's so key is idols can be good things. They can be good things. But if we give our affection and our trust to them, We've, we've given it to the wrong thing. And we often establish our worth by them. And so then we have to ask, what am I looking to? What am I looking to for worth, for significance, for meaning? What makes me feel important? Because those things are the things that can become idols in our lives. You know, sometimes we do something, and it feels good to do it. That's not wrong. That's not wrong. But what happens is, is after a while, if I go, well, if I keep doing that, I keep feeling good. I keep doing that. I keep feeling good. People will notice. <clears throat> and then what happens? It becomes a source of, of worth, a source of significance. And it slowly becomes something that I trust more and more. That's how idols start. And our Father, our Abba, out of love, is looking to pry these idols out of our hands. He does not want us to waste our lives chasing, looking, hoping for things that ultimately cannot give us what we need. So the people of Israel, they're wandering from God in a time of prosperity. And as Americans, I think one of the things we can struggle with in our country is we think the worst that can happen to us is adversity, and we want comfort. But prosperity can be worse. Because even in this time of COVID-19, we're the, still the richest nation on the earth. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and it's a little bit of a longer passage, but it's well worth reading. God is talking to the children of Israel about when they get into the promised land. And I've kind of mentioned this before. 
But he, but he, he basically says, you're, you're going to get into this land that, that is just so uh, vibrant and so uh, life-giving, and it's the land of milk and honey, and things grow, and, and you're going to get there, and there's going to be grapevines. You didn't plant those grapevines. It takes like five to seven years for a grapevine to mature. There's going to be olive trees. You didn't plant those olive trees. It takes years for an olive tree to yield olives. There's, there's going to be fig trees. There's going to be this. There's going to there's, there's be hills that have been terraced so that you can you can grow on even on mountains and, and, and be fruitful and be plentiful. And he says, and you're going to yield that abundance. And he says, and you're going to go, look what my hands have done. And you're going to take the glory that belongs to God. He says, that's the danger of prosperity is we take God's glory for ourselves. So, rebels misuse God's blessings. Rebels squander their privilege. In chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. So what, what is he saying here? Okay, he's, he's giving an illustration that they would understand very quickly. He's talking about uh, uh, this, this beloved cow that now is it, it's on the threshing floor. That, that's a technical term. Basically what that is, is that's where they bring grains or they bring, or they bring olive, uh, you know, olives or all kinds, of, and, and they crush them. There's a huge, there's a stone, you know, just like with a stick, and you've seen this, like oftentimes a donkey will do this. You've seen this, and they, and, and they just go in a circle and they roll that stone. That is way easier than plowing a field. That's the easy thing to do. And what happens is, as the grain comes in and out, lots of it spills. As olives crack, pieces fall all over the place. All the different things that they, that they would do with it, so that the cow or whatever animal, or sometimes it was people, but if for the animals, as they're pulling this thing around, there's food on the floor. So they're eating as they're working. And it's the cushiest job in the animal world, I guess you would say. It's the cushiest job in the world. And he's saying, this is what I did for Israel. I blessed them. Even in your work, I blessed you. But now I have to put a yoke. There's going to be a yoke that's going to be put on your neck. And now you're going to plow. Now you're going to break up the ground. And that word break up the ground is the word for breaking up the fallow ground. That is land that, ground that hasn't been plowed for a long time. So it's much harder. He says, you, because I've given you this privilege, you've squandered it. Now you're going to have to do something that's way more difficult here. God had protected them through those hundreds of years of up and down and back and forth. And, and God had protected them from the heavy yokes of other nations, but they had rebelled. The privilege that God gave them, they rejected. Years ago, one of my daughters, um, I came upstairs, I'd heard her, she was angry about something, and I heard her door slam. So I came upstairs, I gave it a little time, you know, let things cool. I came upstairs, and I knocked on her door, and I said, hey, hey, I, 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 we need to talk. So I hear this voice, and I mean, we're talking about like a six-year-old. I hear this voice say, no, this is my room, no parents allowed. I said, wait, just hold up. Let me just make sure we're understanding each other. This is your father at the door. We need to talk. Stay out. 
No parents allowed. And I don't know, everybody who's a parent here starts going, oh, I know where this is going because it shows how old I am. I'm like, let me get this straight. I bought this house. I bought the furniture that's in your room. I bought the clothes you're wearing. The fact that you're still alive at this moment is just by my grace. And you're telling me I can't go into the room that I've bought and paid for. That's ending real quick. Now, she had, she, she, she had thought ahead, and she had locked the door. What she hadn't thought about is, you guys know, on top of every door jam in a house, there's that little thing you stick right in, and boop, the door opens right up. So I boop, and the door opens right up, and she's like, oh. and I said, yeah, the wrath of Bob has arrived in this room, right? It, it just, it, it, and, and I imagine, imagine this with the children of Israel. God says, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done for you. Stay out. This is our country. We don't want you. We've made this place beautiful. Leave us alone. And God's like, I bought this place for you. The rain. Who do you think is in charge of rain around here? You know, the growth, the sun, all, the weather patterns. This is the crazy. I mean, you can imagine God just thinking, this is the craziest thing I've heard any human being speak in a long time. And so, in verse 12, Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. What is he doing? God interrupts right in the middle of and goes, you guys, you got this wrong. You're sowing, and earlier we talked about it, he said, you're sowing to the world, you're going to reap the whirlwind. Sow righteousness. You will reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up the unplowed ground of your heart, he's obviously saying. That hard heart, break it up. Now, we can easily sit here and go, man, they're so stupid. But we have to understand this can be us. You know, in the parable of the prodigal son, we, you may not be thinking, well, I'm not the kid. I'm not, I didn't run off and squander and do terrible things. But we also have to remember the loser in this whole, that whole story is the kid who stayed home and thought he was righteous. It was his self-righteousness that prevented him from welcoming back his wayward brother. It was his self-righteousness that prevented him from accepting the father's invitation to come into the house. That's amazing. He was the one who thought he had it all together. So we have to be careful. As we look at this, we have to be willing to own these things and think about them. And so he's saying in verse, in, verse, in verse 12, repent. This is the point that God has been making all throughout this book. Repent. He's saying it's hard work to repent. Do the hard work. Sow. Sow to righteousness. You will reap a crop. Break up that hard, fallow ground. Soften your heart. Verse 13, but you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. So now he's just echoing it. This is, this is that chiastic way that oftentimes in, in the Hebrew, they use it that, to uh, say the same thing and just turn it just a little bit. You have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. He says, you depend on yourself and it 
will always fail. Now, we may have, you may be in a, at a point right now where you're depending on yourself and it's working. That's fine, but it doesn't work forever. It always fails. And he said, this is what you've done. Instead of what I asked you to do, instead of what I've been begging you to do, instead of what I've been pleading for you to do, this is what you've done. You've planted wickedness, you're reaping evil. You've, you, you've gotten the fruit of deception. And he says, well, what is that fruit of deception? He said, here's what it is. You're trusting your warriors rather than God. You're trusting your military might rather than God. You're trusting the system that you've built, whether it's a political system or whether it's a military system or whether it's an economic system. You're trusting that system more than you're trusting God. You know, this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible helps us understand the brokenness of the world and why it happens. And the Bible always also at the same time brings hope into the equation. The Bible says what happens, people, they sow to, to evil and unrighteousness, and they reap terrible things, and then the fruit of deception happens, and they believe things that are not true. He says, but, but if they will turn, if they will begin to sow to righteousness, they will reap, reap, <laughs> reap unfailing love, and their heart will be broken up, and it will be open. And God can use it. He'll sow in it and it will grow. And so we start to have to stop and think, what am I sowing? What am I sowing in this life? Am I sowing good or evil? Am I sowing love or hate? As I sow in relationships with people around me, as I sow in, um, in my neighborhood, good or evil, love or hate? As I sow on social media, Am I saying things that build people up or am I saying things that tear people down? Am I sowing good or evil, love or hate? We have, to be, we have to be so careful about that. Because this book teaches us God keeps track. He knows what we've done. We've got to be careful. What seeds am I planting? I need, and I was thinking about this the other night, I need to decide to plant love, even with those I disagree with especially with those I disagree with. That's where I need to plant love. Is there hardened, heart in my, hardened ground in my heart that needs to be broken up? Is there a sin that needs to be broken up? Why? Because Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. And this brings love and righteousness to the earth. That has to be my focus, seeking first the kingdom of God. Above all else, nothing else is as important. Other things are important. But nothing's important, as important as the kingdom of God. Rebels misuse God's blessing. Rebels squander their privilege. And rebels reject God's love. Now, he talked about the vine. He talked about the calf. Now, what he's going to talk about is the son. So, so we've, we've kind of switched it here. He, in the earlier chapters of the book, it was about a husband and wife relationship and God's great love for his wife, Israel, which now, you know, we look further down. We see his love for the church. But now it's a father-son. It's a family love. It's a family relationship. And so God is painting these pictures in all kinds of ways so we see it from all kinds of directions. Because, you know, there may be one, like we may go, I don't understand the vine thing too much. I mean, that just doesn't ring in my life. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer. You know, I don't get the cow thing because I'm, I'm, I'm not out in Montana. You know, but, but man, father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter, that type of that type, that, you can relate to, I can relate to that. 
And it's very moving here. It's very touching. God is looking back, and it's very obvious. God is brokenhearted here. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He's looking back. He said, man, I loved Israel's. When I called him out of Egypt. I called them out of slavery and bondage. Their lives were horrible. They were barely existing. Death was commonplace. I called them out of that. I called them out of that. My beautiful, precious child. Now, we know Matthew talks about this with Jesus. God quotes this verse, I called my son out of Egypt. And here, Hosea is looking back. But Matthew now is, is adapting that to the life because he's saying Jesus' life illustrated the, the Exodus experience. He was called out of Egypt. He went through temptations for 40 days. It just a picture of the children of Israel wandering in the desert, dealing with testing for 40 years. People were set free. That was Jesus' call to set people free. So what's happening? Jesus is redoing it in a sense, and it's being done right. Israel's failures are being reversed. And now we can know God. We can know him intimately as our father. And Jesus made that happen. That's why he says, this is how you pray. And you can adapt it. I mean, this because this is what it, my father who art in heaven. My father who art in heaven. That's how we pray. Jesus is saying, that's what we have now. Such a great promise. And again, don't let the failures of an earthly dad steal this from you. In verse 2, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. You can almost see God going, I don't understand this. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. And God's saying, I never, never wanted that. Why does he never want that? Because he knows it will destroy them. God says, this will ruin you. This will ruin you. One time when uh, one of my kids, we went to the beach, and our daughter, Holly, you know, she, she, was, she was like three. And, uh, and, and we, so we went to the ocean, and her older brother, Derek, was in there splashing in the waves, and I was playing with him, and, and, and Bev was holding Holly right, right at the edge where the waves were kind of breaking at their, her knees, you know. And Holly wanted to go in deeper. But she was just three, you know. And so she was crying, and she was pulling, and when she sat down, and she was kicking her feet, you know. And so after a little bit, being the great dad and husband that I am, I came, and actually my wife said, will you come help me with this? And so I came, and, and I said, I'll hold her for a while. You go play with Derek, right? So I'm holding Holly, and she's like, and she's sitting down and whatever. And I said, do you want to go in deeper? And she said, I said, you shouldn't go in deeper. And I let go of her hand. You know, this chubby little penguin-looking thing goes walking towards the water. And I'm like, don't. Stop. Come back. Stop. Don't come back. You know, I'm like, oh, let me. Oh, too late. She's, and a wave just wailed her. Because I knew a wave's going to hit her, and it's going to bring her back to me. It's like the automatic return thing. So a wave hit her, and, and it's, it's like head, butt, feet, head, butt, feet, head, butt, feet. And I pick her up out of the water and uh, said, that's why. 
Unfortunately, she was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, we've, the whole thing, whole thing was lost. But it reminded me of a great theological movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, when the little kid goes running and they say, do something, and he says, stop, don't come back. Because that's what, that's what I think, that's what I, and I think about this verse, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. I'd say, man, you have been doing, you want this so, okay, go. It's all yours. It's all yours. And what does God say? He says, but it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it. Who, they did not realize it was I who healed them. He says, man, I, I have loved this kid so much. You know, every parent, sometimes you could stop and think back about when your kids learn to walk. And it was so exciting. It was so exciting to remember the kid's first few steps. And you'd be amazed, yeah, look, 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 you know, like that. And, and uh, even now, sometimes parents, and, and it's, it's cool, parents will come up to me and say, you want to see a video of my baby's first steps? And I want to say, do, you mean, do I want to see a video of a little kid who looks like they're drunk, fall flat on their face? In the, but I say, oh, that would be awesome, right? You know, to see your baby's first few steps. Because, because most parents, right, after a while, as you get older, it's like, yeah, my kid learned to walk. I think it was four months. It was just brilliant. My kid is, you know, we just remember it that way. Why? Because it's a moving time. It's a special time. The first time your child walked is such an awesome thing in, in the life of a parent. And God says, I was there. I was so excited. I taught you for him how to walk taking them by the arms, taking Ephraim by the hand. And, or as you see so many parents do, you know, walking them like this. God says, I did that. I did that. They didn't realize I was the one who healed them when they got hurt. It's a moving thing. And God says, they didn't realize it. They didn't care. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Again, God is using these, these images. Uh, child to cheek is that idea of a hug. That's the image of a hug. Um, the, the, every parent will remember probably one time where their child was in their arms and they rocked them to sleep. And there is this feeling of, as a parent, this is the greatest experience I'll ever have in my life. This little life is snuggled up against me and falling asleep in my arms. This is awesome. That's a fraction of what God feels. He says, I led them with the cords of human kindness, with the ties of love. Everything I did was love. I lifted the, like a little one to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. All these phrases express tender, loving care. And God says, but they didn't want it. They didn't want it. What does he say in verse 7? He says, my people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. He's saying, they give me the lip service, but they are determined to turn from me. Look what I did for them. And they reject me. They reject me. And this passage for, makes us focus on the personal uh, nature of Sid. Sin is not just rebelling against some words on a page in a big book. 
Sin is not just rebelling against some impersonal demands that have been cooked up over thousands of years. Sin is rebelling against a personal loving God, and it hurts him. It hurts him deeply, and he expresses that. So rebels, they misuse God's blessing. Rebels, they squander God's privileges. Rebels, they reject God's love. And then the fourth one, the Father's scandalous, faithful love. Prosperity, privilege, love, all these things they had, they rejected, and it's ruining them. And what's, what God's, it's like, what will God do? Because God has to do something. I, I, I've sat in and I've experienced it enough times and sat enough times with parents who are like, we have, to make, we have to do something to make our child see how serious this is. We have to do something. And what is God going to do? And there is suddenly this abrupt shift in chapter 11. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Okay, Adma and Zeboim are two cities that were destroyed for their sinfulness a long time ago. And he's saying the, the, the total destruction. And he says, I can't do that. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. What is God saying? And, and the way it's worded, it seems to be that God is saying, okay, this, uh, it could have been total destruction. It's not going to be total devastation. People are going to survive this. My people are going to live through this, and I'm not going to come back and do it again. It's not going to happen again. The destruction will not be what is deserved. And I'm doing something else in the midst of this. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. And they will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, he says. And so they're going to be coming from these different places. What is he? And it's very interesting because, you know, when a lion roars, generally people go the other way. And here he's saying, I'm going to roar, but they're going to know this is the roar of their God. And they're going to come, but they're going to come trembling. They're going to come trembling. And they're, it's interesting because he's, we, we know when Assyria came down, people, whenever there's a war in those days, you, ha you have to make a choice. Am I going to go to a fortified city and take my chances there? Or am I going to run to the wilderness, to the hills, or to the coast, and take my chances there? And, and we know lots of people took those, they, they ran to, to the wilderness or to the coast. Especially, um, um, you know, sometimes the people got glimpses of the Assyrian army and were like, no, our cities are not going to handle this. And so off they would go. But in those days, people didn't know when an army invaded how big it was. It was very hard to get information and that type of thing. And so you would go to a city like Lachish or, 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 or Jerusalem or Jericho, and they'd have these huge walls. You go, oh, that's a safe place. And so people would go there. Oftentimes, but for some people, they would run. So we know some people ran to Egypt to get away. Some people ran to the coast to get away. And then some were taken into Assyria by the Assyrians. So they went in those directions, which Assyria is kind of north and, and, and uh, east. Egypt is south. The coastland is west. But I think what's interesting here is 
The West is also Europe. It's Greece. And it's like God is saying, I'm going to bring people back from everywhere. From everywhere. I think looking forward to the church, that day when every nation, every tongue, every tribe will be represented at the throne before God. He's going to pull people in from everywhere. In this type of a passage and a situation, God is faced simultaneously with two truths. First, he takes sin more seriously than we ever could. And secondly, he loves us more than we could ever understand. And so we see how did he resolve this at the cross. He judged and he saved at the same time. Judgment and mercy, wrath and grace at the same time. And so Jesus came. Why? Jesus came so we could be transformed, so that we could be justified, so that we could be reconciled, so that we would become adopted. And, and, and let me just take a moment just to remind, adoption, Paul talks about that. And in the Roman system of adoption, what happened oftentimes was, was uh, powerful Roman people, their kids were, were terrible kids. They were privileged and, and they had all the blessings, you know, so they would turn out terrible. And these, these parents would go, I'm not giving that kid everything because that kid is going to ruin it. I need a new kid. And so what they would do is they would adopt oftentimes. They would adopt, and it's not adoption necessarily like we think of. They would adopt like an 18-year-old. They would go some family, they find out about this kid who seems to be very hardworking, smart, does well, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, hey, I'd like to adopt your kid. He will be wealthy beyond his dreams. In the process of adoption, I have to reconcile any debts that your family has so that you will get, you'll get a total new slate on, on life and your kid will become a powerful person. And for a lot of families, it was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I mean we, uh, uh, um, a number of the, of the Roman um, Caesars were adopted. They were adopted into the family. And they would go through this really interesting uh, process. Because in a family, if you had a natural... Ah, this is taking a longer rabbit trail than I thought. If you have a natural child and they really bought you, you can kick them out. You kick them out. Then later, oh, you can bring them back, and everything's fine. Then you can kick them out again, and oh, you can bring them back, everything's fine. But the third time you kick them out, they're not your kid anymore. You kick them out, they're gone. They're not your child anymore. You don't have any responsibilities to them. When you adopt someone, they go through a really interesting little ceremony. And in the ceremony, they say, do you want this child? And the, and the person who's going to adopt says, away with him. Some weird thing they do. And, and then they'd say, do you want this child? Away with him. Do you want this child? Away with him. They'd say away with him three times. And then they would say, you want this child? And they would take him and they would adopt him. Now, what does that mean? When you're adopted, you can never be disowned. You could never be disowned or kicked out of the house. Paul is talking about that adoption situation when he says we have been adopted into the family of God. That's why he can say you are heirs of the inheritance because you can't lose it. You've been adopted in. You can't lose it. And so that's what Jesus Christ did for us. So we have the vine that failed. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. We're a part of that vine and we bear fruit for God. In the, in the last part of that chapter, we have the calf, the heifer, that had to 
be saddled with the heavy yoke. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is answering these things. He's saying, you, 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 you're the vine now. You're the blessed vine that will, that will yield fruit. Your, your yoke now is light. And now you are adopted in as a son, and you cannot be as a son, as a daughter, and you cannot be disowned. And so, in uh, 10 and 11, he says, Then he will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. And they will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. He says, I will call people from everywhere all over the world. So today there's a lion that is calling people. There's a father who loves and he rescues rebels like us. When we see finally the story of the prodigal son, we see this father that the son comes and insults to his face. I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And the father does. He lets him go. He gives him the money, and he lets him know, knowing full well what's going to happen. Knowing that what was coming. But then what does the father do? He looks for him every day, ready to welcome him home. And when he sees him, he does something no older person in Israel would ever do. He runs to him. He runs to him. He gives him sandals. He gives him a signet ring. He gives him a robe. All signs of acceptance back into the household and symbols of authority and power. And he said, my son was dead. Now he's alive. We have a heavenly father who is looking for rebels. And as followers of Jesus Christ, he has charged us with a duty. He has said, look with me for rebels. Help me find them. Help me welcome them home. That's our job. Do not get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked by anything else. There's a lot of things. I mean, this right now, in this time in, uh, of history in our country, there's a lot of things that will pull us away from what our duty is. But God says, no, stay focused. Help me find rebels. Help me love them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Hosea, which at first glance is such a difficult book. But as we dig, Lord, we see glimpses of love. We see glimpses of grace and mercy. We see your great love for us. We see calls for repentance over and over and over to wayward children. Father, help us not to be too um, over. Help us not to be overconfident, but to be willing to look at ourselves clearly and see if we are wayward too. And as your children, we run back to your arms. Those cords of love that you have bound us with, and you hold our hand, and you lift us to your cheek, and you bend over. You get in our face to love and to feed us. All these things, Lord, we thank you for. Help us this day 
this week, this month, this year, little by little to get glimpses of your love for us and to understand it better and to allow it to change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us this morning, whether you're at home or in this auditorium. We appreciate that you're here. Uh, God bless you, and you are dismissed.